So this morning, I want to invite us to think uh, a little bit about the significance of names uh, and titles for things, okay? Uh, because names have significance, and uh, titles for uh, a place or a person, a book or a movie, uh, these things have significance because hopefully the name of something or the title, what it's known by, sort of captures the essence of that thing or that person, right? Uh, I, I'm sure that many of you have had the same experience I have where you meet somebody and they sort of have this vibe about them and they sort of have this way of being and then they tell you their name and you're like, you don't look like that. Like that name feels like it's misplaced on you, right? And then other people, it feels like the name, it clicks, right? It's the right thing, it's the right title, whatever. Um, uh, we, we went through this, for example, my wife and I went through this process uh, of naming when, uh, when she was, because we were not pregnant, with, uh, with children when she was pregnant uh, with our, our two daughters, uh, Miriam Grace and, and Hannah Joy, we had to go through the process of picking a name, right? And what's the name uh, that we felt like would capture them? And uh, we had a lot of layers we had to get through. Uh, my wife is Welsh, uh, as, as some of you know, and the Welsh language, if you've ever spoken it, uh, it is, it's like impossible, right? It's just like, it's actually not possible to learn it, I don't think. It's, it's words with 30 letters, there's 29 consonants and a vowel uh, placed in there. And so I've been married to her for 20 years and I can't, when we go there, it's like, I don't know where we're going. I cannot read or pronounce this. And she had a whole thing about we're going to, what if we gave them Welsh names? And, uh, and nothing in our marriage works like, and it shouldn't work like where I just sort of go, that's not what we're going to do. Like we don't function that way. We shouldn't function that way. Uh, Beth is not the kind of wife going, hey, what is, give me permission for this or not. That's not how we work. So it's very rare that I do this, but I'm like, we cannot do that to them. We cannot. She threw out a couple of names that she had ideas for that she thought were like low-hanging fruit for an English speaker, and I could not pronounce them. The only one that I can still uh, uh, even try to replicate was Angharad. And that's the best I can do right now, and it's probably not close, and I couldn't spell it, right? Uh, and so if I, you're just like, Beth, we cannot do this. And she goes, oh, well, the good news is, um, is that their nickname could be Harry. I'm like, I don't know where you're from. I don't know how your culture works, but we cannot have our daughters going around in America introducing themselves as Harry. It just, it just cannot, it's, it's not going to go well and, and everything else. So we, we set on these names, uh, Miriam Grace and, and Hannah Joy, and it was this wonderful thing uh, to kind of talk through the, the values in their names and why we picked this. But we didn't tell anybody because we wanted when they were born to look at them and say, is this Miriam Grace, right? Does that name feel like it fits? Now, some of you are sitting there going, what a silly exercise like to look at a, a baby that's an hour old that is six pounds and screaming in a crib and going, that feels like Miriam Grace, right? Or that feels like Hannah Joy. But that's what we decided to do. And with both of them, we looked at them and it's like, that's Miriam Grace. That's Hannah Joy. And it feels like it captures them, the essence of them. And, and still to this day, and again, just as a parent, I just have, like, you might disagree. I have the total right though to say, that's what I think their name should be. I think it captures the essence of them, right? The name matches them and captures the essence of them. Some names don't. Some titles don't capture the essence. I'll give you an example. The first time I ever came to Austin, Texas was Labor Day weekend of 2013. Labor Day weekend of 2013, um, 
it was after I'd been in conversation and Beth and I had talked to the search committee from this church that was looking for a pastor and we had Skyped uh, and talked and prayed and talked about this whole thing. We had no idea if God was calling us to come out here, but the committee said, do you want to come out and visit? And we said, yes. Uh, so we decided to come out. So Beth and I, the two of us flew out and it was Labor Day in Austin, which meant it was 146 degrees uh, when we arrived and that was at nine o'clock at night. And so, you know, it's Labor Day until you're getting ready for fall. And uh, they said, you know, welcome and we're glad that you're here. We went out and had dinner on Friday night at, at one of the uh, committee members' homes. Uh, we had a great time. It was cool to start getting to know them and it's different when you meet them in person and you're interacting. We had a great night. But when we were leaving, they said the next day, the title of what they had given us for the next day was Climbing Mount Bunnell. <laughs> now, I did look at Beth and like, when we were flying, did you see any mountains when we flew in? I didn't see any mountains when we flew in. Uh, it didn't feel like there were any mountains at all. It felt like really flat. Uh, but maybe we just flew in from the wrong way. And, because there was an expectation of what that means, right? Uh, Beth grew up in South Wales. Uh, it's 20 minutes from a national park there. They have peaks in this, in this park. There are thousands and thousands of feet high. We love climbing and hiking mountains. Like, that's a thing for us. And so, like, every year uh, when we get to go to Wales, we always spend hours. Uh, it's, but it's a day, right? You go climbing for a day. And it's this whole process and experience. I grew up in Atlanta. So so the Appalachian Mountains are just like an hour north, and we, growing up, we would go hiking and climbing mountains a lot. There was an expectation when you heard the term climbing Mount Bunnell of a certain process of what that would be, an experience that we were expecting that would come from that. And we were also nervous because it's like we only have flip-flops and we only have sandals, and I don't think we're ready to go climb a mountain. Um, and they're like, no, 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 you're fine. So like, we'll pick you up and we go. I didn't realize that climbing the mountain was 110 steps up a hill uh, to go and, and, and look. Now, that's not to cut down on the experience. It was really cool. The people that took us up there, they gave us a history of Austin, and it was totally different, like learning the history when you're up at that amazing view, that beautiful view, looking down at the lake and looking at the city, and we had this great conversation. So it wasn't a bad thing. It just felt like the title was wrong, right? Like, when I look back on what that was, climbing and mountains were nowhere in the vicinity of what I experienced that morning of doing. The title didn't match the essence of the experience. I'd like you to have that in mind today as we bring the scripture passage up before you because this pericope, this, this, this section of scripture, these seven verses that we're reading, uh, in every translation of the Bible I can find uh, has the same title above it, the parable of the lost sheep. If you Google that, you will have tons of information come up, comes up. Artists throughout the centuries have depicted the scene we're about to read. There are blogs written about it. There are entire books written about it. There are... Um, uh, um, all kinds of, uh, of different essays that are written about it, lectures given on it, all under this title, The Parable of the Lost Sheep. And I wonder today, with that title that we've given it, if that title captures the essence of what Jesus is trying to say as he teaches. Does it match the essence or not? Let's look at what he says. Jesus says this. He says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together with his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. 
Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that no matter who we are, how we walk in here, no matter what doubts, what questions, what beliefs, what opinions, what hopes, what dreams we have, and all of us have them, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us this morning through the power of your Spirit and change our lives forever. We want nothing less than that. And we can pray this with confidence because it is through your Spirit that lives are changed forever. We ask for your leading and your guiding to us all this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The parable of the lost sheep. Does that feel like it captures the essence of what Jesus is trying to say here? I mean, in some ways, it seems certainly applicable. It's understandable why the lost sheep is a central person or our image in this story. The lost sheep is something that all of us can relate to. Jesus is clearly, as he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, talking about and trying to respond to this answer where they're like, why does he hang out with these people? He hangs out with sinful people. He hangs out with the wrong people. And Jesus is trying to explain uh, what it means and why the heart of God uh, goes after the sheep that are lost. And it's easy to see who he's talking about. And it's also easy to see that those lost sheep are us. Now, some of us today might sit there and go, no, I, 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 I'm not saying it's a bad thing. That's exactly where I am. I'm not interested in this faith. I'm not interested in this religion. I'm not interested in its morality. I'm not interested in how it's supposed to go. I have got my way of doing things. I'm not trying to hide that I'm the lost sheep. I am saying I'm living by a different set of rules. We live in an age where that is actually celebrated today. As one sociologist writes, that the, the age that we live in today, that the ultimate authority on life is the supremacy of the individual. And therefore, we live in a society today where nobody can tell me what I'm going to do. I've got my truth. I've got my story. I've got my morality. I've got my way of living. I've got my values. I've got my way of raising my children. I've got my ways of of my philosophy of parenting. And I will live it out because I believe it's better. Yes, Lord, you tell me in the scriptures how to handle my finances and my money and to be extravagantly generous, but I've got my own way of doing it. And it's my money anyway. That's what it means to be the lost sheep. I know that you have called me to share my life intimately in pockets of community where people know how to pray for me and I can pray for them, but I just don't really feel comfortable doing it, so I'm not. We know what it's like to be the sheep, and so the sheep, this lost sheep, is a central part of this story. Certainly, it's understandable why it might be in the title. I know that I can certainly relate to that in all parts of my journey. As many of you know, I didn't grow up believing the stuff that we sing about and talk about here. I can remember at age 24 when faith became real to me. I can remember exactly where I was and what we were talking about and what was going on like it was yesterday. And I remember the moment where I realized that I had been living a life that was going to be on my rules and my morality and my way of doing things and everything in my life looked amazing and I wasn't really all that happy. And the moment when I realized that Jesus was alive and real and speaking into my life and calling me to be a part of something bigger than myself, bigger than my own narrative and my own story and my own truth and my own way of doing things, calling me into something bigger and more glorious than I could do on my own, I remember that moment when I heard the voice of the shepherd. 
but I still have that in my life this week. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I might be the only one here, but I'm still the lost sheep. Because I've got all kinds of areas of my life where I'm like, I hear that's what you're saying, I just really don't want to do that. Lord, you've called me to be a pastor and to lead in this place, and I know what that means. And so, do I need to pray about every decision? I should say yes, but I don't. Because I just sort of know what you want me to do a lot of the times. I might be the only one that lives that way. But I doubt it. The lost sheep is certainly central to the story and central to each of us. But here's the deal. Does it capture the essence to say that this is the parable of the lost sheep? Is that the essence of what Jesus is trying to say? I'm not certain. I don't know that it is. In fact, if we're going to include sheep in the title, I'm not certain that Jesus is really talking that much to the lost sheep as he's talking to the other 99, right? Because what Jesus is also saying is that he's not telling this parable one afternoon because he's bored. Like, I don't know, let me just fill some space. Here's a good story. Right? He tells this story because the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious rule followers, uh, are the ones who are going and grumbling about what Jesus is doing. He's hanging out with the wrong people. And so they, Jesus tells them this story about the heart of God for going after the lost. And we've got to hear the sarcasm in Jesus' voice when he talks about that God rejoices when one sheep is found, not when 99 who have no need of repentance are there. Because it is very clear that the religious rule followers in this story may be who Jesus is talking to. Because they have as much to repent of as not more than the one lost sheep. They have become so full of their own self-righteousness. So full of what makes someone good. So full of the rules. So full of how they're doing things. That they sit in cold and calculated judgment of everyone else. In their own self-righteousness, they wag their fingers at the world telling everybody else what they're doing wrong and why it's not good enough. And you can see the judgmental nature in this story and in this passage when we see that the, the hearts of these 99, these 99 rule-following sheep who have done everything right, we see the nature of how far they've wandered from the heart of God that they can't celebrate the fact when one lost sheep comes home. In fact, there's probably a piece of those of us religious, righteous ones who are sitting there going, well, they sort of get what they deserve. I know I'm not supposed to say that out loud. But the Bible does say you reap what you sow. They made the choice. They chose badly. And it goes even further than that. Because not only do they somewhat become judgmental and not understand Jesus' heart for the lost, for the sheep that wanders away, but they also become judgmental about the shepherd. If they're being honest, there's probably a piece of them that is questioning and it's grumbling because it's irresponsible, the shepherd, to leave the 99 that made the right decisions to leave them in the wilderness and go pursue the one lost sheep. That cold, calculating self-righteousness. You see, what the, the, the problem is, is that if we say that this is the parable of the lost sheep, that it means that Jesus is directing himself on one lost sheep and not the other 99. It means that if we say it's the parable of just the lost sheep, that there's a grade in what it means to be a sheep, that somehow the 99 are somehow better off than the one, that the 99 are like PhD level sheep, right? That the 99 have kind of figured out a better way of being a sheep than the one, and that isn't true. 
The parable of the lost sheep works under the assumption that you can improve your way, that Christianity somehow is a way of you becoming a better sheep. So you work your way to getting better. It's the problem with saying that this parable is in its title by saying it's the parable of the lost sheep because that's saying that some sheep are, 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 are less than others, less valuable than others, and we have everything in our world that tells us where we find value, doesn't it? Value is something you earn. Value is something you achieve. Your GPA makes you feel like somebody or like less than somebody. Your athletic ability on a team makes you feel like somebody and worth something or less than others. And you are treated that way by what you earn. We have our degrees, we have our jobs, we have our job titles that show and rank everyone on a value. And so it plays right into how human beings work when we say this is the parable of the lost sheep and Jesus wants us to go from sheep that are lost to sheep that are found because the truth in this parable is that Jesus is saying sheep are sheep are sheep. Not one of them is better or more worthy than the others. In fact, I think if we wanted to have a title for this passage, it wouldn't involve sheep in the title at all because I don't think the essence of this passage is about sheep at all. It's about a shepherd. The essence of this passage, that the essence of what Jesus is trying to do is to celebrate the love of the shepherd, not talking about how you change the way you're a sheep. That's the one thing that we can say with clarity that with every sheep, all 100 of them, whether they're the one that's lost or the 99 who have not gone wandering, that Jesus is pursuing them in love, that the shepherd is pursuing them all because he loves and values all of them. Yes, he goes after the one. And I remember that moment in my life, and some of you might remember that moment in your life when the shepherd literally came and picked you up in love and began carrying you back with celebration and rejoicing. But what it also means is to those 99 rule followers that had done everything better than me up for those first 24 years, that Jesus was engaging and loving and pursuing them as well. And the reason we know this is because he's talking to the Pharisees and he's teaching the Pharisees here and he's sharing his heart with the Pharisees. He's giving his vision to the Pharisees. He's saying this is what the heart of God is like. We know as Christians where this story leads. We know that Holy Week is coming. We know that the cross is coming. We know what the grumbling of the scribes and Pharisees is going to lead to and so does Jesus. But he does not turn his back on them. He does not turn away from them. He pursues them in love as well. This parable is about the love of the shepherd. It is Tim Keller writes, the gospel is not that we become better, more worthy people in the eyes of God. The gospel is that we are more broken than we ever dare admit and more loved than we ever dare imagine. Christianity is not a self-improvement plan for life. It is a faith that is based on the celebration of the love of the shepherd. You are more loved than you can possibly imagine. You have more worth and more value than anything in this world has ever told you before. And there is nothing that you can do that impresses God that adds to that. And there is nothing that you have done in your most shameful moments that takes away from that. And a life of worship is one that celebrates and stays in touch with that love. Because you will have so many messages in the world that try to rob you of what worth and value you have. 
Some of us, as we close, some of us are going through Lenten practices. Lent, uh, we're in the first Sunday of Lent, and so we have these practices that we do uh, that maybe you entered into, right? We do things to, like, avoid chocolate because that brings us closer to Jesus, right? Uh, we stop drinking caffeine because that, Jesus, that's what is really on his heart is whether you're drinking caffeine or not. And it's not to ridicule those things. Those things are good. Those things can happen, but on their own, they're not enough. The point of fasting is not to just say, oh, look at me, I'm not drinking caffeine. It's to say, as I abstain from these things, I'm aware that what I usually need, I'm going to now turn that attention to God. It's, it's, it's stepping away from certain things. Uh, and Jill said this in her Ash Wednesday service. It's saying no to certain things in order to say yes to better things. But it's that turning your attention, turning your energy. When we were in the process with the search committee about whether God was calling us to come out here, we were so confused after a while, and in the end, we invited them to pray and fast with us for a day. And the point wasn't to sit there and go, look at us, we're not eating, we're not eating for a day, look how we're not eating. It was to say, Lord, sustenance and direction and strength and power come from you. And so in not eating today, we want to turn our attention to how much we need you guidance. It wasn't just about not eating, it was taking that and allowing that to focus us on God. How can you and I have Lenten practices this, this day, this week, this Lent, that aren't just actions that we do, but that we focus on God? Now, you may already have yours, but I want to tell you an example of one just to have in your head. And if you haven't had one yet, there's not this rule. The 99 might say this, but Jesus is not going, you missed it. You missed Ash Wednesday. And if you didn't start now, you can't have a Lenten practice because you missed the time. You can still do something, Okay. My favorite stories is of the German monk and theologian and reformer who's kind of helped start the whole Protestant church movement, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a very complex person, as we all are. But one of the things that Martin Luther was honest about that he wrestled with that all of us do is where his worth and his value came from, where he felt important. And sometimes when he was uh, leading this Reformation movement, and sometimes when people were celebrating him and asking him to write about things or asking him to speak on things, he felt like somebody. And then he had all of these moments like you and I have where he realized he was still a really selfish person, where he was still a really self-centered person, where he was still a person that fell far short of the glory of God, no matter how important other people's said he was. And so like all of us, when you get your worth and value through what you do, how do I become a better sheep rather than celebrate the love of the shepherd? That your life becomes this value systems of roller coasters where you feel important and not, important and not. I'm somebody, I'm not. I'm somebody, I'm not. And so Martin Luther developed this habit. It was a practice to remind himself of where his value and importance came from so that he didn't turn Christianity into just a behavior improvement program but he focused on the shepherd. It caught people's attention because when he was struggling with his worth and his value, he had this pattern he would get into where he would start muttering something, and he would mutter it by himself, and people were like, what is he doing? And not only would he mutter this phrase over and over again, just very quietly to himself, but he would touch his head while he was doing it. He would just mutter and touch his head, and people were like, what, what in the world is going on? What is he doing in that? But it was a practice for him. It was a practice of remembering and celebrating the love of the shepherd which is the root of everything. As the monks got closer to him and listened in German to what he was saying, what he was doing when he was really struggling with his own doubt and his own sin and his own sense of worth, is he was touching his forehead and saying over and over and over again to himself, I am baptized, I am loved, I am baptized, I am loved, I am baptized, I am loved, I am baptized, I am loved. 
My worth is not determined by how many people want to read or listen to what I say. And it is not taken away by how many people think I'm a failure. I am baptized. I am loved. Our faith is not about behavior modification to become a better sheep. It is a celebration of the love of the shepherd. May that wash over you today. You are loved. You are valued. You are somebody. And that is the greatest news you will ever hear. (laughs) Signs and wonders, my friends, signs and wonders. Make no mistake, Jesus wants you to hear that. Not that. (laughs) You are loved. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do ask this day that we would live lives that turn our attention constantly to the worth and value of the shepherd to the pursuit of the shepherd who pursues each of us this week, who reminds us that we are loved and adored. We have so much in this world that tells us what makes us important, what makes us valued, what makes us lovable. May it wash over us again today that we are loved and valued because you and your majesty declare it. May we receive that and may it fill us to overflowing as we go back into this world today that you love so much. May this rest in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.